to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 1, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Let us carefully attend to the Word of God as it's read. Children, pay attention. Even as, as I read, you follow along in your Bibles if you know how to read. If uh, you do not uh, listen closely to what is being read, um, give careful attention now as the Word of God is read. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him, as commandments to them. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and Endre, on this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the sea coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as He has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, The thing which you have told us is to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment, You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. 
So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. And the plan pleased me well. So I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And I said to you, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land in which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, Even you shall not go in there. But Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. 
We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up to the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in the mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. Thus far the reading of God's word. Today I'd like to speak concerning the issue of biblical faith. And I'd like to do so against the backdrop of unbelief. Hopefully we'll understand better at the conclusion of this sermon what faith is, what biblical faith is, as well as what unbelief is. The essence of faith It's simply, children, very simple concept. We can make it very difficult, but it's a very simple concept what faith is. Faith is simply taking God at His word. When God says something, you believe because God said it. You don't question it. You don't doubt it. If that is what God says, you believe it. That's biblical faith. Now, to make it a little more complicated, however, the ingredients of biblical faith are, first of all, that we must know what God says. We must know what God has revealed concerning Himself. There must be knowledge before we can exercise faith. The second part that we must realize about true faith, biblical faith, is that there is an assent on our part, a consent on our part, that we say what God has revealed is true. It is true. So we know, we learn what God says. We say what God has said is true. And the third aspect is that we commit ourselves. We entrust ourselves to that truth. And so these three aspects, As we look at God's Word, these are the three aspects that through through history the Reformed divines have, have narrowed biblical faith down to these three ingredients primarily. Let me read for you what the Westminster Confession of Faith says concerning biblical faith. It says under the category, the heading uh, entitled, Of Saving Faith. uh, There are three paragraphs here, but I think it's important that I read these three paragraphs for you so that you have a very good understanding and you can take this section home even amongst yourselves and your family time today and consider these particular words. But listen closely. 
to what it says concerning faith. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. Let me pause there. Faith is a gift from God. God must give us faith. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 says, Not all men believe. Not all have faith. Only those to whom God gives faith have faith. And it is wrought by the Spirit of God, and ordinarily the means that is used is the Word of God. The confession of faith continues. By which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. These are means of grace. They strengthen our faith. The Word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. The second section says this. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatever is revealed in the Word. Notice why we're to believe whatever is revealed in the Word. This is what the confession says, the reason. For the authority of God himself speaking therein. Not because we like it, not because it's appealing to us, but because God, our sovereign creator, our Lord, our Savior, has revealed himself and he has spoken to us. As clearly in his word as if he were uh, present speaking audibly to us. He speaks to you in his word. The confession continues. And acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Here it demonstrates again that we have faith because God has entered into a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has purchased our salvation. He has purchased our faith. All of it we owe to the Lord God Himself. Finally, these last, this last sentence. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory. Growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. That last section emphasizes that not everybody has the degree, same degree of faith. Not every Christian has the same level and maturity of faith. There are degrees of faith. And we nevertheless find that we can grow uh, in our faith, as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord God. 
One passage that you may turn to at this time that I think emphasizes that faith is accepting the word of God as God himself speaking unto us is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Thessalonian converts here, writes, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, But as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The word of God rather than the word of men. That is what faith is. It is taking God at his word, believing that whatever he has revealed is true and clinging to it. Therefore, as we look and consider what unbelief is, unbelief is simply not taking God at his word. It is doubting that God has indeed given to us truth. It's not committing oneself to trust and love and to obey the Lord God and what he has revealed. Now, unbelief, as we will see in the sermon today, dear ones, manifested itself in two extremes in the people of God, as we have just read in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and the parallel passage in Numbers chapter 13. Unbelief manifested itself in two ways. And these two ways are ways in which we must continuously be aware in our own life that unbelief comes to us the same way. And we must, uh, because we are forewarned, because God has given us insight to see this, pray that God will deliver us from these manifestations of unbelief. The two ways, the two extremes by which unbelief is manifested, the first way being fear or despair, and the second way being presumption. Fear on one extreme Presumption on the other extreme. Well, let's look at very uh, briefly here the, the very first way in which unbelief is manifested. Despair. You know, the despairing person is the person who crawls around and crawls into a shell, as it were, to a wallow in self-pity. The trials of life are are like giants to the person who gives in to despair and to fear. These giants uh, seem to just completely overwhelm him. He cries out, the person who is in despair, Woe is me! Uh, The person who is in despair and living in fear. That manifestation of unbelief is uh, uh, an extremely pessimistic kind of person as he looks at life, as he looks at God's promises. He doesn't cling to them. He doesn't trust in them. He's overwhelmed. 
It can be so extreme in some cases that a person is almost paralyzed. Psychologically paralyzed. He just doesn't feel like he can move at all because of this unbelief, this fear that's manifested in his life. Worry seems to be a preoccupation. Worrying about this. Worrying about that. He just can't seem to find certainty in anything. That's a person who is overcome by fear and despair. That's one of the extremes that we must continuously be aware of in our own life. It is a manifestation of unbelief. But the other extreme is that of presumption. Unbelief can also manifest itself in this way. Presumption. The presumptuous person is the person, if you look at him outwardly, he seems to know where he's going. He seems to be very confident in what he does. He speaks and he acts with confidence. He speaks and people listen to what he says. But he knows, he acts and he speaks contrary to what God has declared in His Holy Word. You see, his confidence is a false confidence rather than one that is based upon the Word of God. In the larger catechism, in question 105, this kind of presumption is called vain credulity, a vain unbelief. It's a false confidence because it is based on one's own understanding, one's own reasoning, rather than upon the Word of God. That's still a manifestation of unbelief. The one person, in one case, is cowering in fear, unbelief. The other person is walking confidently and yet can still be manifesting unbelief. As we consider the passage before us today, I'll probably be referring back Deuteronomy chapter 1 and Numbers 13, those would be the two passages that we will be looking at from the Old Testament. But as we consider these passages today, God's people in the Old Testament fell into both of these manifestations of unbelief as they faced the Lord or as they faced the land which God had promised to give to them. We'll see first of all that they, that they uh, cowered in fear. And then, that not being uh, the only manifestation of unbelief, then they go forth presumptuously apart from the command of God. Both cases, manifestations of unbelief. You see, unbelief brought God's wrath. And this is no insignificant matter, dear ones. In our life as Christians, we are called to examine our hearts. We are called to look closely to, to we, if we see this root of unbelief springing up within our life, to plead with God to destroy it, to trust, ask God to give to us that faith that we need to overcome that unbelief. As the people of God in Numbers chapter 13 had left Egypt, 
They had left under the mighty hand of God. God had displayed His wonders, His glories in delivering them from Egypt, a type, a picture of salvation. You remember the plagues that He had poured out? You remember how He had opened up the Red Sea and swallowed up the Egyptians? You remember how He had given them victory over the Amalekites? How He had graciously provided manna? How He had provided the, uh, the quail, water, how He had given to them even His own holy law. God had been a Father. He had carried them, as the Word of God says, as a son. He had borne them like an eagle upon His wings. God had been most gracious to His people in all of this. Just as God has been gracious unto us in delivering us from our sin, from Satan, from death, from condemnation, from the power of sin in our life, God has been most gracious. And all of these ways in which God delivered Israel are simply pictures of how God has delivered us in the fullness now of our salvation, now that we have come to maturity. And now the people of God stood at the threshold, right at the threshold of entering into Canaan, to take the land that God had promised to give to them. Promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had covenanted, He had sworn by an oath that He would give this land to them. Now, God didn't even have to swear by oath. God did not need to enter into a covenant. God could simply have said, I'm going to give this to you. Promised it. But God encouraged their faith by even taking this further step. That's what happens each time we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is an added evidence and testimony to our faith that God will keep His promises. He will be faithful to His Word. These are covenant seals. And the Lord had promised to give this land to Abraham's seed. All that remained for the people of Israel to do at this particular point was simply to go in and take the land. That was what God called them to do. The land is yours. Go in and take it. But what did they do? Well, first of all, we're going to consider how they withdrew in fear. They withdrew in fear. The people suggested to Moses that it would be a great idea to spy out the land first of all. Moses agreed, (coughs) and then the Lord commanded that one leader from each tribe, twelve spies, be sent out into the land, that they would come back after this reconnaissance mission and report back as to the, the quality of the land what the land was like, as well as what the inhabitants were like. And when they returned, they did not simply have one report to give to the rest of Israel. They had two reports. There was a majority report, and then there was a minority report. Now, in Presbyterian circles, we're very familiar with majority reports and minority reports. Those often are the kinds of situations that come out of committees. Well, they had a majority report of ten, 
and a minority report of two concerning the land. Before we look at those reports, however, this should caution us. This should caution us, people of God, concerning the problems of operating on a democracy where truth is often determined by the will of the majority or established by opinion polls or surveys or simply because this is what a council decreed. Truth is established only and always with certainty and confidence upon the truth of God's Word. The Spirit illuminating our mind and understanding to that truth. The truth is determined by God. It's not determined by people, no matter what the statistics may say. No matter how many people may say, that's not right. The ten said, let's not go into the land. There are giants there. There are only two who said, let's go into the land. There are giants there and they'll be like bread. We'll eat them up alive. We'll take the land. How often, dear ones, we hear today When we seek to bear witness to the truth, how often have you heard, nobody believes or practices that today? Where are you coming from? If you are right, why are there not more churches, more men of prayer, more men of holiness that I know of, believing these things, seeing these truths that you say are in the Word of God? Why has the Holy Spirit not led all these other churches or reputable preachers or Christian psychologists or seminary professors to these peculiar beliefs and practices of yours? I'm sure if you haven't heard that, you will. Uh, I know that as I see the smiles on your faces that you have encountered these kinds of responses. You see, dear ones, this is really, those kinds of responses are really a monument, a monument to the judgment of God, I believe, that such darkness and ignorance has overcome the people of God today. When we hear those kinds of responses, not going back to the truth of God, but saying, well, who believes this? How many churches, as if we count heads to find out, to determine what's right and wrong, what's true? Whether it's the issue of Sabbath keeping and our commitment to observe and to Maintain that one day out of seven is holy unto the Lord and we're to cease from all the work that we are are legitimately able to do on the other six days. Whether it's that issue or whether it's the issue of women wearing head coverings in, in worship or whether it's the issue of 
of gathering and worshiping, not using instruments to worship God with, and singing only psalms to the praise of our Most High God. Or whether it's the distinctive roles which we proclaim that God has given for men and women. Or whether it's God's sovereign election of His people, which as we heard in the catechism class today, is very unpopular in the eyes of many today. And yet it is the truth. It is taught from beginning to end in the Word of God. And I would dare say there are many more churches who do not believe in the sovereign election of God than do, as well as with these other matters. Or whether it's the truth that a nation is obligated to covenant, to follow Jesus Christ and His commandments. Whatever the truth may be, in most of these areas, dear ones, we will find that we are in the minority. And that's not to say that we understand and know all we should. We have much room in which to grow, no doubt. We are still learning, and by God's grace, we will continue to learn and to reform accordingly. And so we're not simply pointing our fingers at other people and saying, because they have not arrived. For this reason, they are living in unbelief. We haven't arrived either. But the point is, once we are confronted with truth, do we embrace the truth or do we push the truth away? And when we begin to use these kinds of arguments... It's an indication that we are pushing the truth away rather than embracing it. Let me just simply say to you children today and to you young people, resist the temptation to follow the crowd. Don't Follow people simply because there are more that are telling you to do one thing and you know that it's wrong. Don't follow the crowd just because people tell you to do so. Now, I may not fully agree with everything about this situation that I'm going to refer to, but it does give the example of one who is not following the crowd. And I refer to the serviceman in the United States Army, Michael New who refuses to take the uniform of the United Nations because he swore allegiance uh, to the Constitution of the United States. He is the only one out of his whole battalion that's being sent there that refuses to, to take that particular oath or allegiance to the United Nations. He is willing, in that particular instance, in that circumstance, to walk contrary to many hundreds of men. He's willing to go through court-martial. I just learned this last week that he was homeschooled as well, that his parents were missionaries. And again, though we may not agree with all of these particular positions theologically that he may stand for, or even politically, one has to say that for someone in that circumstance to stand against the crowd, is something that we pray that our children, for the sake of the truth, will be able to do against all of the hordes of the unbelievers in this world. 
God's people, whether there's one, whether there's two, we're willing to stand against everyone else. The people of God withdrew in fear when they heard the report of the the ten who came back. What was that majority report of the ten? Well, turn with me to Numbers chapter 13, verses 27 through 29. Listen to the report of the ten. Numbers 13, 27. This is the report that came back from the spies. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us, and truly, it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. And then verse 31 through 33. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Therefore we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. <coughs> You want to say to the ten spies at that particular point, yeah, fellas, we understand that there's giants in the land, but what about God? What about His promise sworn by oath to give you this land? No doubt they would have responded at this point in time. Promise? What promise? All I can see are those giants out there. God is invisible to me. God's Word, God's spoken Word to me is invisible. It's something I can't see. It's something I can't feel or touch or grab a hold of. But those giants out there, those are real. All 500 pounds of them, real. And they're staring us, square in the face, waiting for us. We're like grasshoppers to them. They'll devour us. We're nothing compared to them. You see, God's completely out of the picture here, isn't He? They're simply focusing upon the circumstances. The ten spies chose to believe the reality of those giants who made them look like grasshoppers rather than to believe the reality of God's verbal, immaterial, invisible promise. The spies in reality said at that point, these giants are more real than God and His promises. People of God, 
isn't this really so true? Isn't this where the rubber meets the road in our lives? How practical God's Word is. How it teaches and instructs us. How it reveals to us our own sinful hearts in this way. When we really get into that situation, what is real? Is it the promise of God? Is it the Word of God? Is it standing upon the truth of God? Or because I'm put on the spot, I must cave in? Is it the giant out there? Is it the fear of man? Dear ones, why do you face or why do you fear the giants in your life that you face? Why do you fear them? Well, this is, again, getting at the, the whole issue of unbelief. <clears throat> I think, first of all, we fear the giants in our life because we've accepted the humanistic presupposition that seeing is believing. That what we can see and feel and touch is real, more real than the invisible Word of God, than the invisible God Himself. And we've swallowed it. At that particular point in time, when we succumb to that temptation to run in fear, to be paralyzed by fear, to give in on the basis of fear or worry, <clears throat> we have imbibed that particular humanistic presupposition of seeing is believing. You remember the example of Elisha and his servant? When the Syrian army completely encircled the city where Elisha the prophet was living, Dothan. And they encircled the city of Dothan because the king of Israel continued to get information that was only privy to the secret to this council of the king of Syria. And the king of Syria was saying, who amongst us is betraying us? Giving this information to the king of Israel so that he knows all of our movements. <clears throat> And someone said, it's no one who's betraying you, O king. It's the man of God in Israel. God gives him the information and he shares that information with the king of Israel. And so Syria besieged Dothan. The armies of Syria besieged this small little town of Dothan. And when in the morning the servant got up, he looked out over the, the, the walls, out over the... The, the plain outside the city. And as far as he could see the city, the, the plains, the territory were filled with Syrian troops. And he was overcome with fear and ran into his master and said, Master, Master, come and see how we are besieged by all of these Syrian troops. And you remember what Elisha prayed, that God would open his eyes to see the invisible troops of the Almighty, Most High God that besieged that small, insignificant army of Syria. You see, dear ones, God's hosts encamp around His people. 
God, even though we cannot see, this room, we are told, is even filled with angels even now as we worship the Most High God. Angels are attending in our worship of the Lord God Almighty. The promises of God. Seeing is not always believing. You see, belief is not a blind leap of faith. Belief is trusting and taking God at His word. And God says that His forces, His mighty hosts encamp around us. Do you believe that? Do you children believe that God's angels are all around you? That's what God says. God is protecting you. You don't need to be afraid at night time. See, God's angels protect you. They are there with you. <clears throat> the second reason that we run in fear in the face of giants, I believe, is, is simply that we do fear man more than we fear God. And whatever we fear the most at that particular point in time becomes our God. It is what we are giving our thought, our worship, our obedience unto. And that is why unbelief, according to the larger catechism, is a violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. At that point, rather than trusting God, we have sinned the sin of idolatry. We are trusting, we are fearing something else more than we fear God. <clears throat> but some people would say, if only the Lord Jesus was here like He was with the apostles during that first century. If only God were here, and the Lord Jesus were here in flesh and blood, I would believe. I wouldn't be running afraid. I wouldn't be frightened. <clears throat> The Lord God tells us very clearly that the Lord God Himself is with us. And it's just a question. Whether He is here in flesh and blood or whether He says He is here, He is here in all of His power and might and strength. Will we believe Him? Will, he, will we trust Him? You remember Doubting Thomas? The Lord said to him when he did not believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead because he had not seen him with his own eyes, Jesus said, Blessed are those, Thomas, who do not see and yet believe. Paul said we walk not by sight, we walk by faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as you turn in Hebrews chapter 11, dear ones, just want to note a couple things. In Hebrews chapter 11, note this. <clears throat> Verse 1, how seeing is not believing. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Not seen. Again, Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, 
prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, divinely warned of things not yet seen. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They didn't see them right there. They were not tangible. They were not things they could grab a hold of. They saw them afar off. And yet they believed them. And then finally, look at verse 27. By faith, this is speaking of Moses, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Dear ones, seeing is not believing. The ten spies... Rather than cowering in fear before the giants, they should have considered Abraham, their forefather in the faith, who according to Romans chapter 4, did not waver in unbelief, though his body were as dead. And though his wife's body was dead, they were past the years of bearing children. Yet he did not waver in unbelief. He believed God. He trusted God in His promises that God would fulfill them. You see, Abraham saw the giant in his life, that giant problem. It was very real to him too. What do I do about this body of mine? It can't produce children. My wife, she cannot have children. This is a giant of a problem. But he looked beyond the giant and saw a God who works even that which seems to be impossible to man. Instead of uttering what they did, the ten spies should have said the equivalent, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They should have said to the equivalent of this, with God nothing shall be impossible. We've looked at the the majority report of the ten and how they cowered in fear. Look at the minority report of the two very quickly. In Numbers 13.30, it says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. That was the testimony of Caleb. And then in chapter 14, we'll consider uh, verse 7 through 9. And they spoke to all the congregation, this is Joshua and Caleb, they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's a very encouraging passage whenever you feel like you're in the minority. Read that passage. Cling to that passage. There is strength that God will grant to us. Now, were Joshua and Caleb being cocky and and overconfident by saying that? 
Were they being presumptuous by saying that? Of course not. They were simply standing upon the truth of God's word. That's not presumption. They were declaring their faith. They were giving verbal testimony. They were bearing witness. Because they had covenanted with God, they were bearing witness to the truth that God is faithful. He will keep them. He will give them what He has promised to give them. In the next couple minutes, I simply want to demonstrate to you from the text that unbelief is not only cowering in fear, but it is also acting in presumption. Notice that finally, not only did the people withdraw in fear, but they also acted in presumption. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Verses 41 through 46. Notice these words. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you, you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. <clears throat> the people withdrew in fear when they should have acted. That's unbelief. The people acted presumptuously when they should have withdrawn. That's unbelief as well. They trusted in their own resources when they should have listened to the Word of God and obeyed and trusted what God had said. The people of God in this situation and we as well act in presumption whenever we act in a way that is contrary to what God has revealed in His Word. It may be out of sincerity, maybe out of ignorance, but whenever we act contrary to the word and revealed will of God, we're acting in presumption. Whether it is uh, Yuza in First Chronicles 13, who certainly we can't accuse him of acting. Uh, maliciously in trying to keep the ark from falling down, but he acted presumptuously because he was not acting in accordance with the will of God. Or whether it's Saul in 1 Samuel 13. He was ready to go out and do war and battle and he was waiting for Samuel to come to offer sacrifice to bless them as they would go out and fight. And he saw his army dispersing before his very eyes. 
And he said to himself, I better get these people out there on the battlefield before they're all gone. Samuel's not coming. And he offered a sacrifice when he had no business in offering a sacrifice. And God brought judgment upon Saul. He acted presumptuously, not in accordance with the revealed will of God. Presumption may also be done out of malice or guile, as in the case of Jezebel, when she framed Naboth to get his vineyard. Very malicious. That's presumption as well. Anything when one acts, acts not in accordance with the revealed will of God, one is acting presumptuously at that point. Dear ones, as we consider the, the end of these witnesses, the ten and the two, we find in this account in Numbers chapter 14, verses 36 through 38, that a plague consumed the ten false witnesses. A plague, death, ensued upon them. They were swallowed up with this plague. But the two who stood against the tide, who stood before all of the people, ready to incur their, their anger, their wrath, their displeasure, ready to stand for God's truth, these two entered into the land to possess it. They became the leaders of God's people. <clears throat> Shows us the great responsibility, doesn't it, with regard to leadership. Those whom God calls to be leaders in families, those whom God calls to be leaders within His church and within the government, we are responsible to give a faithful testimony to those whom we lead. We are responsible before God not to mislead, not to deceive, not to cower in fear nor act in presumption. God calls us as His people to act as did Joshua and Caleb. As I conclude today, dear ones, let me simply emphasize the real issue here is not how much faith you have. The real issue is who is your faith in? Because you all believe something. You either believe those giants are reality to such a degree that you're not going to believe the promises of God or you believe that God's promises are true and you cling to those. We all believe something. It's a question in whom is your faith placed? Because even the faith of a mustard seed is able to say to that mountain, be removed and cast be cast into the sea. Even the smallest amount of faith, God can give you the grace to do what is right with the smallest amount of faith if you be a new Christian. You can be obedient as a new Christian. And as you grow in your knowledge of the Lord God, God increases your faith and gives you more responsibility to obey Him. 
But never say, I simply can't obey God because I don't have enough faith. That's not the issue. The issue simply is, in whom is your faith today? If it is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Him, He has already overcome the world. You remember in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle John says, Your faith is that which overcomes the world. You remember the martyrs as they went in Revelation chapter 12. They died. They gave their lives for the truth. How did they overcome the evil one, the enemy, by the word of their testimony? They believed and they confessed what they believed. They overcame even in their death. They overcame by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb and they did not love their lives even to death. God grant to us the grace to stand firm in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to make the good confession as Jesus made the good confession before Pilate as the Apostle Paul made the good confession before Nero, as the martyrs confessed the truth before their persecutors, God grant us the grace to confess the truth, to stand and believe the Lord God, not to cower in fear, nor to act in presumption. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that that even now you would strengthen our resolve to follow you, that God, you would bring us to that place of repentance for as we search our lives, even now we see how much unbelief there has been in our lives in fear and in presumption. Oh God, we pray that you would, would bind our hearts unto the Lord Jesus Christ even now, that we would grasp a hold of the promises of God, invisible as they may be to our eyes and yet very visible to our faith. We ask, Lord God, that even the smallest of our, our children, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see the, the, the invisible truths of your word, to know that the invisible God sustains them, the mighty God sustains them, and that He sends their angels to protect them. Oh, Father, we pray that, that You would, in this particular time, when much of what we profess to believe is very unpopular, it is the minority report that we would not grow discouraged. But yet, Father, we would continue to, to know, to grow in our knowledge of You, uh, to, to learn and not to run in fear. We ask, Father, that even now you would prepare our hearts as we, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper together. For Jesus' sake, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.